Well, amen. Praise the Lord for worship and song. If I wasn't ready to preach, your singing helped me be ready to preach. So, praise the Lord for that. On this third Sunday of Advent, if you would, please take your Bible and turn to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. Last week, you may remember that we looked at the end of history, where the triune God will be worshipped by all that He has made. And this week, we're going to consider the event that brings about the end of history. The return of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 19. And our focus is going to be verses 11 to 16. If you would, please follow along with me as we read. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Let's pray together. God, we do ask for your help now that we would understand the word of God as it has been given to us, that we would particularly understand what your word reveals regarding the word made flesh, our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that his name would be magnified and lifted up. We pray that he would be known in truth today. We pray that his people would be renewed in repentance and faith. We pray for the lost to be saved. We pray, Father, for his kingdom to come and for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray this confidently, Father, knowing that you will help us, that you will keep us, that you will protect us even now. In Jesus' name, amen. We begin today with a question. The question is this, if we identified all that is necessary for the salvation of the church, what would we put on that list? What must occur in order for the people of God to be saved? What must occur? Well, right from the start, we would say that salvation requires atonement. In order to save the church, Christ shed His blood at the cross to pay for our sins. Then we would very quickly say that along with atonement, salvation requires resurrection. In order to ensure life for God's people, Christ rose from the dead. We would say that salvation requires the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. By nature, every person is dead in their sins. And therefore, in order for Christ's salvation to be applied to you, the Holy Spirit has to give you new life. Salvation also requires the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Without holiness, no one will see God. So God, in His grace, works by His Spirit to make His church Holy, atonement, resurrection, regeneration, sanctification, all of those things and many more, friends, are necessary for the church to be saved. But there's another thing that must occur for salvation, and it, it's, it's a work that we often overlook. 
We've actually already mentioned it this morning when we recited the Apostles' Creed. We believe Jesus Christ is coming again to do what? To judge the living and the dead. The judgment of God as carried out by the Lord Jesus is essential to the church's salvation. What I mean is that salvation will be complete only after Christ dispenses divine judgment upon Satan the fallen angels, and all those who do not know God and submit to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That final judgment is part of Christ's saving work, as necessary as the atonement is. It is through the final judgment that God's justice is displayed, and it is by means of the final judgment that righteousness is made to dwell on the earth. As much as contemporary Christianity wants to avoid this point, there is no final salvation apart from the judgment of God carried out by Jesus Christ. Now, I'll admit that this is not a typical Advent theme. But perhaps it should be. Let me make my case for why it should be. At Advent, we celebrate the first coming of Christ when the Son of God laid aside His glory and took on flesh for us and for our salvation. But that first coming, friends, lays the groundwork for a second coming. In fact, you could say it more strongly. The second coming consummates the work that Christ began at His first coming. They are two sides of salvation's coin. At the first coming, we see the grace of God in giving His Son for the salvation of His church. And then like the other side of the same coin, the second coming reveals the justice of God. Where He rights every wrong and recreates everything in truth and in righteousness. Both comings, both advents of Christ are necessary for the church to be saved. Or to say it another way, We love to sing that wonderful line from the Christmas carol, Joy to the World, that Christ comes to make His blessings known where? As far as the curse is found. But if you want the blessings to be known as far as the curse is found, then someone has to defeat evil. Someone has to crush the curse. Someone has to bring the judgment of God upon His enemies and cause righteousness to dwell on the earth. For that reason... Advent is actually a good time to celebrate both the first coming and the second coming of Christ. The salvation of the church must include the revelation of God's grace in Christ Jesus and the revelation of God's judgment through Christ Jesus. It must include both. And our passage this morning in Revelation 19 brings this necessity into clear relief. What we read in these few verses is the final battle against the forces of darkness. Satan, through his emissaries, the beast and the false prophet, has deceived the earth and made war against the church. But then suddenly, the eastern sky splits, verse 11. Christ descends and salvation comes through judgment. That's Revelation 19. It's the victorious return of Jesus Christ. And in this text, we see three reasons for hope that are bound up in the mighty return of Christ. That's where we're going to focus this morning. The return of Jesus reveals these three great realities that consummate His work of salvation and therefore give hope to the church. 
So three reasons for hope from the return of Christ that brings the judgment of God. Let's consider these together. The first reason comes primarily in verses 11 and 12, but also verse 14. The return of Christ reveals the vindication of God's people. The vindication of God's people. Now, by vindication, I mean the act of proving someone or something right. In the book of Revelation, God's people are those who hold firm to God's Word, which raises the question, will their confidence in God's Word prove true and right in the end? That's what I'm focusing on here in this first point. Will God's people be vindicated for trusting Him? And right from the start, there's a victorious tone to the text. Notice again what John sees, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. In the culture of John's day, a white horse was a symbol of victory. When a king conquered an enemy, he would ride into the enemy's capital on a white horse, signifying that his conquest was complete. He had no more enemies. So just from that cultural background, we know that the rider of this horse comes to conquer. And he comes in victory. John then quickly adds more detail though. Notice the description that John gives of the one riding the horse. Again, verse 11. The one sitting on the white horse is called faithful and true. Friends, that's an important name for Christ in the book of Revelation. Back in chapter 3, when Jesus speaks to his churches, how does he identify himself as the faithful and true witness? So the connection here is clear. Unlike Satan, who deceives the world with his words, the one riding the white horse faithfully establishes truth on all the earth. And indeed, that's why the faithful and true Christ is riding on a white horse, because He brings the final victory over the deceptive forces of Satan. So right from the start of the passage, brothers and sisters, we should be encouraged that the final battle between God and Satan is a settled affair. The outcome is not in doubt. Christ does not come with the hope of victory. He comes with the certainty of victory. As the faithful and true Savior, Jesus comes to consummate, to bring to a climax, salvation. But you'll notice that as the text continues, John adds more insight regarding Jesus. The vision expands and each point gives us more depth to the victory of Christ. Notice some of this detail with me. First of all, John highlights Christ's mission. Look at the end of verse 11. In righteousness, He judges and makes war. Now, that sounds like a strange thing to say about Jesus, that He comes to make war. What is this about? Well, this is actually a very significant point in the book of Revelation. That verb used in verse 11 to wage war is also used in chapter 13 to describe the satanic beast. The beast makes war against the church. And terrifyingly, in chapter 13, there is no one who can fight back against the beast, John says. So by the time you get to chapter 19... The beast appears invincible. He's making war on the church and there's no one to stop him. But then everything changes. God sees the affliction of His people and in His justice God sends a warrior, the Lord Jesus, to turn the tide. And in justice, Christ makes war. There was no one found to fight the beast. Chapter 19, Christ comes to fight 
the beast. He makes war on Satan, the beast, and its allies. And that's his mission. That's Christ's work at the second coming. He comes to enforce the judgment of God and he does so in righteousness. But notice also Christ's position in carrying out His mission. Look at verse 12. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on His head are many diadems. We've already seen Christ with eyes like fire back in chapter 1 that symbolized the purity of His judgment. But now with those eyes of fire, Christ wears many diadems or many crowns. Only two other people in the book of Revelation are crowned with a diadem. The dragon, that is Satan in chapter 13, and the beast in chapter... uh, Satan's in chapter 12, the beast is in chapter 13. So both the dragon and the beast are crowned with a single diadem which pictures their deceptive claim to rule over the earth. But here in chapter 19, we see that Christ is crowned not with one diadem, but with many. (laughs) With many crowns. In other words, Jesus is not a pretend king. He's not a phony ruler. His position is absolute. In the final battle of the ages, he comes with many diadems because he has no rivals. Everyone will bow before him. And then notice finally Christ's sovereignty. Look at the last line of verse 12. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. What's that about? There's a lot actually to say about that phrase, but we're just going to focus on the primary point for this passage In Scripture, knowing someone's name is a means of having control over that person. So think about in the Gospels, whenever Jesus would come uh, up against an unclean spirit, and the unclean spirits would often cry out with Jesus' name, we know who you are, the Holy One of God. That was an attempt to control Jesus. But every time that attempt fell flat in the Gospels. Well, here in chapter 19, the point is similar. When John says that Christ has a name that no one knows but Himself, he's talking about sovereignty. No one on earth can control the Lord Jesus. He answers to no man. In fact, in order to know Christ, He must reveal Himself to you. His name belongs to Him alone. So if you want to know His name in the ultimate or redemptive sense, you must know it only by grace. Christ is absolutely sovereign. So put all of those pieces together and you can see why a white horse of victory is the perfect image in verse 11. Christ's mission is to wage war against the evil one. His position is firm. He has no rivals. And His sovereignty is absolute. There is no one who can oppose Him. Brothers and sisters, this is the great warrior champion of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. And He returns to vindicate the people of God in their faith. That's the connection that I want you to make at this point. Christ returns to vindicate God's people. In fact, notice verse 14 where this connection is made very clear. When Jesus returns, notice who comes with Him. Verse 14, And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following Him on white horses. In Revelation, white linen is the wardrobe of the saints. Look back up at verse 8 in chapter 19. The bride of the Lamb, that is the church, the saints, 
is clothed in fine linen, bright and pure. So when Christ returns, the saints return with Him. But that's not all. Notice that the armies of heaven are also riding white horses, just as Christ does. In other words, the saints participate in the victory of Jesus Christ. The saints share in the spoils of Christ's return. It's a remarkable picture of how Christ identifies with His church. It's why the church is called His body. It's why the church is called His bride. Because all that He does, He does with His energy and His affection focused on the church. Christ conquers and then He gives His people a share of the victory. Christ defeats the evil one and He says, you ride on white horses too. He identifies with His people. Friends, what makes this so encouraging is that all through the book of Revelation, the church is persecuted for her faithfulness to God's Word. The beast and the false prophet make war on the church. They attempt to crush the bride of the Lamb. And at times, as you're reading Revelation, at times it appears that the church is foolish for continuing to trust the Word of God. When Satan's power appears to be invincible... Faith in the Gospel looks pointless and powerless. And yet, when Christ returns, the church's confidence is vindicated. When Christ returns, the people of God are revealed to have staked their lives on the one sure foundation in this world, the Word of God in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, this is the message that the church in every age needs to hear. Our final vindication is yet to come. And therefore, we ought to hold fast until the end. Don't fall for the lie that faith in Christ appears foolish. Don't fall for the deception that if you just compromise a little bit with the world, that your experience of faith will then be easier. Don't. Don't fall for those lies. Final vindication is yet to come, and it comes only when the rider on the white horse appears, and then those who have held fast to the faith will share in his victory. So to sum up this first point, John is telling us in these verses to take heart. Take heart. The church's faith is not in vain. Brothers and sisters, your faith is not in vain. This little preview of the second coming should encourage us that the Lord Jesus will return and when He does, He will vindicate God's people. The second reason for hope completes this picture. In verses 13 and 15, Christ's return reveals the destruction of God's enemies. God's people are vindicated, but we also see the destruction of God's enemies. This is where we see how essential the doctrine of God's judgment is to the salvation of the church. These verses are very sobering, but they're also foundational. Verse 13, John continues to describe the rider on the white horse. And what John sees is a mighty judge. Look at verse 13. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. If you remember the opening of John's Gospel, then you'll remember that one of John's important titles for Jesus is the Word of God, the Word made flesh. The significance of that title is that Jesus uniquely makes God known. 
The Son of God uniquely reveals the Father. No one has ever seen God, John says in John chapter 1. It's only through the Son that we know the Father. Friends, this is why Christianity begins and ends with the person and work of Jesus Christ. As the Word of God, Christ reveals the Father to us. This is also why in Revelation and all throughout the Bible, a defining mark of the church is her allegiance to the Word of God. And specifically to the Gospel. In in Revelation, the Word of God is almost always connected with the testimony of Jesus. And that's what defines a church. We are those who hold to the testimony of Jesus as given in the Word of God. So when John sees the Word made flesh, here in verse 13, he's seeing the One who makes God known in the final way, and he's seeing the One whose Word defines and creates and sustains and upholds the church. It's the Word of God riding on this white horse. But in verse 13, there's a specific aspect of God that Christ is revealing in His return, and it is God's judgment. John sees the Word of God clothed in a robe dipped in blood. That's certainly vivid. What's the point? Well, again, we're taken back to the Old Testament. This time to Isaiah 63. That passage is a prophetic prediction of God's judgment, which is intended to comfort God's people. As God's people suffer under their enemies, they should take heart that God will one day make things right. God will one day bring judgment on those who do not know Him, Isaiah 63 says. And when that day comes, God's robe will be tinged with blood. Just as a winemaker's robe is tinged with the juice of the grapes when he treads in the winepress. You see, it's a sobering picture of judgment as God's enemies are crushed under His feet. That's the background to verse 13 in this passage. As the Word of God, Christ comes bearing God's just judgment. His robe is dipped in blood because His enemies are destroyed beneath His feet. And this point is further established in verse 15, where it's clear that the Son brings judgment through His Word. Look at verse 15. From His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Friends, that's one of the most sobering verses in all of Scripture. Christ returns. He crushes God's enemies with His sword-like word. And He meets out God's wrath upon the nations. Remember, the nations in Scripture sometimes refer to those who do not know God. Those who oppose Him. Think of Psalm 2, for example, where the nations rage against God and against His anointed. So when John says that Jesus strikes down the nations and rules them with a rod of iron, he is not saying that Christ merely oversees the people of the world. No, he's saying that Christ defeats, decimates, 
and destroys all opposition to God. Like a shepherd who uses his club to beat back the lions that try to steal from his flock, so also Christ will come and with His Word, He will beat back those who have made war against His church. Understand, this is essential to the good news. And it is good news. This is essential to the good news of the Gospel. Sadly, much of what passes as contemporary Christianity is sentimental mush that has no connection to the Bible. Despite what many people think, God's judgment is a necessary component of His goodness and His grace. If God did not judge evil, then He would not be good. If God did not enforce justice on His enemies, then there would be no category for His grace to undeserving rebels. If God did not do away with wickedness completely, then there would be no foundation for a new creation where righteousness dwells. Sadly, many contemporary views of God are simply idols that we've made in our own image. What many people follow today is not the God of the Bible, it's the God of self. They find the Bible's presentation of God to be too sharp and too distinct, so they determine to make a God in their own image. And they make Him in the image that they love the most, themselves. And therein lies the great danger. When you remake God in your own image, what you end up with for God is just an amplified version of you. And that's terrifying. And since our culture prizes nothing more than the therapeutic comfort of the self, when you make God in your own image, you don't have a category for justice as necessary for goodness. You don't have a category for judgment as the foundation for righteousness. Listen, that's the irony behind all of these contemporary attempts to minimize God's judgment and to make Him more palatable to people's tastes. In the name of emphasizing God's goodness and mercy, people end up destroying true goodness and undermining meaningful mercy. We do not want a God who refuses to destroy wickedness. We do not want a God who is indifferent to evil, for that is no God but a monster. And so, there's perhaps a correction for us in these verses. The God of the Bible is a God of justice and judgment, and that's a good thing. And it's through His Son, Jesus Christ, that His final judgment will come to this earth. Friends, if you have not repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus Christ, then today is the day to do so. God's Word is telling you very clearly what the final day holds for those who do not trust in Christ. It holds judgment. Unthinking, terrible, horrifying judgment. But in His kindness, God is calling you today to repent and believe in the Gospel. 
Surely you have noticed that the final day has not yet come, yes? Surely you've noticed that the return of Christ has not yet happened. Why is God waiting, you ask? Why is He delaying His judgment? The Bible tells you, friend, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. His judgment is delayed not because He's slow, not because He's indifferent, not because He's forgetful, but because He's patient and not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance and faith. So if you're hearing this passage today, maybe you're sitting next to your mom and dad, or maybe you came to church with a friend, or maybe you just walked in off the street and you're not a Christian, if you're hearing this passage today, then this is the kindness of God to you. This is His mercy and grace. That He would tell you ahead of time. That He would warn you ahead of time of what will come at the end. So won't you trust in Jesus Christ today? Today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. Now is the time to receive God's Word. And God's Word here in the Gospel calls you and commands you and compels you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Before we go to the final point, I want to say something here to believers as well as we consider the reality of divine judgment. And I'm just going to try to state it plainly. The doctrine of God's judgment should not, should not, should not make us boastful or arrogant. Write it down and underline it twice. If we read passages like this and think, serves them right, getting what they deserve. If we think that, then we have misunderstood God. And we have misunderstood Christ And we have misunderstood the gospel. The right response, the Christian response to the judgment of God is twofold. One, we should be comforted that God will bring bring all evil to an end. We should be comforted by that. I read a book earlier this year. It was a history of the Soviet prison system called the Gulag. And of all the books that I've read this year, perhaps that one has made me long the most for Christ to return and bring evil to an end. Because there is unthinkable wickedness in this world. So when we hear about the judgment of God, we should be comforted that one day He will bring evil to an end. There is a day coming when wickedness will no longer be present in God's good creation. There is a new creation coming. And therefore, we should be comforted that the Savior appears in a robe dipped in blood and we should never apologize for it. He comes to destroy evil. That's the first response. We should be comforted. The second response for the Christian is this. We should be stunned at God's grace to sinners like us. We should be stunned at God's grace to sinners like us. Brothers and sisters, we were the enemies of God. We hated God and were opposed to Him with every fiber of our being. And left to ourselves, we would have despised God to our very final breath. We are no better than those whom Christ tramples under His feet on the final day. In fact, the only reason that we are not crushed under Christ's feet is because He was crushed for us and in our place. The only reason why our blood is not wrung out in the winepress of God's wrath is because the Lamb shed His blood to satisfy that wrath on our behalf. In fact, earlier in the book, in Revelation chapter 7, I'm about to preach a whole series on this book. It's too good earlier in this book in chapter 7 
Those who are saved are those who have washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. How does blood make something white? Only in the Gospel. The doctrine of God's judgment should make us keenly and deeply aware that we live by grace and nothing but grace. I deserved to be crushed under the wrath of God, but praise God, Jesus Christ was crushed in my place. That, friends, is the Christian response to Revelation 19. Christ comes to destroy the enemies of God and we are saved only because God is gracious. That's the second reason for hope, the destruction of God's enemies. Reflecting on that grace, though, leads us to the third and final reason for hope. From verse 16, Christ's return reveals the exaltation of God's Son. That's the third reason for hope. It's the exaltation of God's Son. This is really the culmination of much that we've seen already in the passage, but it's good to bring it all together here. Verse 16, John gives us one last name for Christ in the passage. Notice what he writes. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Friends, that name is an expression of absolute sovereignty, lordship, and ultimately, deity. This title has roots in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, where it's connected with God Himself. Here in Revelation, the name is applied to Jesus, signifying again that Christ is God in the flesh. Compared to all the kings of the earth, Christ is the King of kings, for Christ alone is God. That's verse 16. But friends, I want you to notice how this name for Christ is revealed. How, does he, how do we see this name? It's revealed in His execution of judgment. That's where we see that He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. It's in His final judgment. If we were to keep reading in chapter 19, we would see Christ cast the beast and the false prophet into the lake of fire. Verse 20. We would witness Christ crush the armies of the beast. Verse 21. And that is how we know that Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. It's through the judgment of God. Where do you see that there is no one like Him as He crushes His enemies? Where do you see that He alone is Lord as He casts the false lords, the beast and the false prophet and Satan himself, into the lake of fire? It's only through Christ's conquest that His glory is revealed. And so this is the great hope of the church. Our champion will prevail, and as he triumphs through judgment, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Far from being a doctrine to avoid, the doctrine of God's judgment as carried out in Christ Jesus is part of the Father's plan to exalt His Son. If you want to live for the glory of Christ alone, then tell the truth about what He comes to do. And call people to trust Him. God's Son is exalted in and through judgment. So what should be our takeaway as we come to the end of the passage, as we try to wrap it up? What is our grand takeaway? Each week during Advent, I've tried to give you one takeaway, one point of application to focus on. The first week was courage. The second week was worship. This week... The takeaway is hold fast to the Scriptures. Hold fast to the Scriptures. Let me explain why. This point has been present throughout the passage. Christ is the Word of God, the One who reveals the Father to us, and He does so through His Gospel. Christ's Word 
is the means of His judgment as well as the expression of His authority, the saints are vindicated for their faithful adherence to the Word of God. It's all through the passage that the Word of God is active, that it's working, that it's defining and shaping the people of God. And I'll contend that's the primary takeaway of the text. As we await Christ's return on the white horse of victory, what should we do? We should hold fast to His Word. We should stand firm in the testimony of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Well, it means many things. More than we can list, but here's a few. To stand firm on God's Word means rejoicing in Christ's full divinity and complete humanity. That He is fully God and fully man. And thus able to save God's people to the uttermost. It means rejoicing in Christ's exclusivity. That there is no other name given under heaven by which sinners are saved. And so therefore, if the nations are going to be brought in to worship God and escape His judgment, they must do so through the name of Christ. It means proclaiming Christ's sufficiency. That there is no sinner so far gone to be outside of God's grace in Christ. And that there is complete forgiveness once and for all to those who believe. Holding fast to the Scriptures means standing firm on the inspiration and inerrancy of Christ's Word, the Bible. That every single word in Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for our lives. It means building up Christ's church. The church is the center point of God's redemptive activity on earth. The body of Christ, the local assembly of believers. So to stand firm on God's Word is to build up the place where His Word reigns in His church. It means proclaiming Christ's Gospel and calling sinners to repentance and faith in Christ. It means, in short, contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Believing that God has spoken in His Word, that His Word has been faithfully interpreted and handed down to us through the ages, and that therefore, listen to me, our calling as Christians is not so much to advance the battle lines as it is to hold the line and stand firm on what we've received. Don't misunderstand me. I want to see people saved. I hope we have to haul in that big baptistry soon and dunk somebody in it because they became a Christian. But the primary task facing us is not so much to advance the battle lines as though the battle depends on us. Notice that the armies of heaven come with Jesus, but they don't fight anybody. The calling is not so much to advance the battle lines, but to hold the line. To stand firm on the Scriptures and make sure that we do our part, that the gospel we received is passed on undimmed to those who come after us. That's what Revelation 19 says do. It says hold fast to God's Word. This is our task. We stand firm on the Scriptures. And when that calling seems too steep, which it will, and when the cost begins to feel too great, let's remember the one for whom we wait. Let's remember the very first name that John uses in this passage. Look all the way back in verse 11. Who is Jesus Christ? He is the one who is faithful and true. Having shed His blood for the church, Christ will not fail to faithfully keep us in the truth. Look, that's the miracle of grace that is at work in the Scriptures, in the life of a local church. As a church seeks to hold fast to God's Word, Christ, through that same Word, 
is holding fast to us. Praise God. Amen. And let's pray. Father, we want to stand firm until the end. We want to hold fast to the name of Jesus Christ and to the testimony of the gospel. We want to play, Father, our part in this grand history of redemption that we would pass on the gospel undimmed that we have received from those before us and that we will now hand down, God willing, to those who come after us. Help us to stand firm. Help us to glory in Christ and all of His work, both His atoning sacrifice and His righteousness establishing judgment at the end. Oh God, please work among us. Please work in us and through us. Please, please bring the lost to a saving knowledge of Christ. Please stir us up to go out to the nations to take them the good news so that they will hear before the great final day. Lord, unless you build the house, those who labor, labor in vain. We are asking you and pleading with you now through your word to build your church here at Midtown Baptist and to do so for the glory of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Praise